find a good reason to motivate yourself, something that's really inspirational to you. And for me, my why is helping people and giving the people the resources that I wish I had when I was first learning. Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 154 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists. Today's special guest is Josh Gu, who is the founder of quickstartclarinet.com. We discuss his online education programs, some of his favorite teaching and educational concepts, including Shankarian analysis, which is pretty interesting if you've never heard about it before, actually, uh, whether or not you should consider creating your own online content, and much more. Patreon supporters will get access to an extended version of today's episode, featuring some discussion about a book that we both recently read called Essentialism, which I found personally quite life-changing. If this sounds interesting to you, you can also get access to the extended version of this and many other episodes at clarinet.com slash subscribe. And you can do this from as little as $1 per month or $10 per year. I'd also like to thank our sponsors. You can take your playing to the next level with Bakun Musical Services. With 14-day trials, free shipping on eligible orders, and expert advice, you can be sure you're making the best choice for your musical needs. For Canadian customers, be sure to check out the new store that offers Canadian dollar pricing. And for everyone listening, I have an exclusive coupon that gives you 10% off your purchase at the Bakun online store. Simply use code CLARINET at checkout for 10% off anything from mouthpieces, barrels, bells, all the way to custom clarinets. That's code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European Cut Read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Chiffrin, Karate Giuffredi, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with great ease of articulation, and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store or at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. I'm here on the podcast today with Josh Gu, who is the founder of QuickStartClarinet.com. So Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. So we've been meaning to chat for a really long time, but uh, this month is sort of a feature of clarinetists around the world, some local, some abroad, who are doing some really interesting and unique things to not only make ends meet during the pandemic, but sort of become entrepreneurial and really carve their own path. And uh, I've watched the growth of your quick start clarinet over the last, oh, I don't know, I think it was about a year, maybe 18 months, and uh, you've really grown quite a following. So before we talk about that, though, I'm going to go back a little couple steps. Tell me what got you started with the clarinet? My story actually leads right into what I'm doing with Quick Start Clarinet, so I think it's a, a good place to start. So my mom played clarinet, and when I was in third grade, actually, I started recorder in the regular elementary band program, and I really picked it up and, and enjoyed it, and I played Silent Night on that many more times than my mom would have liked to have listened to. Um, but when I went into fifth grade, when we started to join band and, and that was an option, it just seemed really natural that I would do clarinet because I liked recorder. My mom had played it and my grandparents actually bought me my first clarinet um, the summer before fifth grade. So I got a little bit of a head start and really got into it. And for whatever crazy reason, in my fifth grade band, I told my teacher that I was going to be the best clarinetist ever. I'm not really sure where I got that idea in my head, but I sort of rolled with it. I had a fantastic middle school band director and really enjoyed band and could see myself maybe being a band director myself at some point. And then in high school, things shifted a little bit and I started to head more towards the performance side of things. And, and when I was in high school, I was thinking, 
well, maybe I'll major in clarinet performance. And I was thinking, well, I don't know if there's any money to be made in that. And I looked up the salary for like principal clarinet of the New York Philharmonic, which was, I think, like 150000 or something at that time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's plenty of money to live on. I'll just go play principal with the New York Phil after I get out of college. And, and that'll be great. Little did I know that's a little bit trickier than <laughs> it seemed at the time. Um, and even more, what I've been discovering in the past few years is I actually don't love playing in an orchestra that much. Uh, if I won principal with New York Phil, I would absolutely do that job. Um, but who knows how much I would like it and how for long I would be able to do it. And since then, I've started to develop more of this passion for marketing and entrepreneurship and teaching. And that's sort of where I'm at now with Quick Start Clarinet, just trying to make content and put things out in the world that make people's clarinet journey easier and, and help people to understand how much fun it is to play the clarinet when you really know what you're doing. Before we move on to the Quick Start Clarinet stuff, I would just love it if you'd tell me, did music come easily for you then? Or was it something that you kind of first had some roadblocks with and your passion developed out of trying to make it work? So when I was first started, or even before I started clarinet, I wasn't great at music. Um, music class was not my favorite class until about when we started recorders and actually playing instruments. And then once I started clarinet, I was pretty much the top of my school the whole time. Um, my freshman year of high school, I was the top like one or two clarinetists at my high school. Um, so I always thought, oh man, I'm really good at this. I'm just naturally talented and, and so great, or I'll be the best clarinetist ever and all that stuff. And then my junior year of high school, I went to a pre-college summer academy at the Lamont School of Music at the University of Denver, where I ended up getting my bachelor's in music performance from. But the pre-college academy had all kinds of different clarinetists from all over the country and even from all over the world who were just so much better than me. And that really opened my eyes that, you know, I have a lot, lot more to go before I'm actually a really solid player. Um, so I feel like it always came naturally to me, but there were some eye-opening moments along the way where I realized that not so much. And at this point in my life, I realized there's really no such thing as being the best clarinetist ever. Um, and I really enjoy how everybody has their own unique sound quality and playing styles and own unique journeys when it comes to playing this instrument. I love that. You know, it's just so interesting because I remember the same thing the first time I went to a clarinet fest. You know, I was probably one of the better players in my university and definitely in my high school. I went there and sort of, you know, you meet a lot of great players, many of whom are younger than you and uh, many of whom can play circles around anything that you can play. And uh, there's always a bigger fish, right? So you have studied with some pretty great professors too, uh, Lori Bloom being one of them who I've uh, always wanted to have on the podcast here. Is there any particular story that stands out with any of your amazing college and um, university teachers? Yeah, um, I'll tell one about Lori Bloom because it's, a, it's one of my actually favorite moments. And I was just before this listening to some of the previous Clarinet episodes. Um, and I was listening to the one with uh, Pablo Bargan, I think is how you say it. And he was talking about the value of live performance versus recorded performances. And that's something I've always been fascinated with, too, where you can just listen to a recording and it's perfect. So what's the point of going to a live concert? But there was this moment where the 
uh, Laurie Bloom was playing the Weber quintet and he was playing on an, on an iPad so he didn't have to worry about page turns but all the string players were playing on traditional paper music and for whatever reason they were very energetic about their page turns and you could hear like a little snap each time and there was a moment um I forget where in the piece it was but they're playing their sort of 2D section right before the clarinet comes in. And right before the clarinet comes in, all four of them snap their pages at the same time. And he actually chuckled like just a little bit before he came in. And it was just it, like captured the spirit of him so well, because he's one of the players where he really enjoys what he's doing. And the big thing that I learned from him is just playing in a more relaxed way and let the read vibrate and let the music happen through the clarinet. And I think that moment was perfect to see that actually like in action and happening. And that's just for whatever reason, something that stuck with me is something that's really fun and enjoyable about actual live performances. You're totally right about the live performance. Like people forget now that we have all these amazing recordings that like going to a concert, it's not just about the music I find. It's also about the, the personality of the player and kind of getting to know them as an artist and in an intimate setting, you know, and that setting could be very large. I mean, I've had moments that I appreciate experiencing it at rock band concerts with 40,000 other people, <laughs> you know, but there's something about that that I can't get from the bootleg I downloaded on I almost said Napster, but that's a little old, um, you know, whatever you downloaded it on these days. Right. But yeah, there's just something about that sort of presence and, and interaction with actual artists. So I love that story. And I'm also I hate when people turn the page like that. Oh, my God. It's I think it's part of the performance. You know, it's one of those things like I remember, you know, Glenn Gould, mm -hmm. Andrew Kasdan was someone who worked with him at the CBC for a long time. I think he was a recording engineer. I've got the book here. I've read it like 15 years ago, but Gould was famous for like talking right at the end of his takes or like being super loud with his chair and like all this kind of things. And uh, in order to rein him in, Kazdin told him at one point to take musical control over the silence in the room. And for some reason that just like triggered him to realize a side of music he hadn't considered. Um, but it's just kind of funny that even an artist of that caliber had to be told <laughs> to be quiet between takes or during, like he wasn't performing anymore, but it was just really funny to, to hear that. So... Anyway, let's dive into what you can offer or what you have been offering, I guess, to the clarinet uh, world. Not only clarinet listeners who might be interested in checking out what you're doing, but any clarinet player and uh, the following you've built and some of the challenges. Just tell me about Quick Start Clarinet. What I'm trying to do with Quick Start Clarinet is just make playing the clarinet really enjoyable and, and really fun. Something that I discovered over my years of studying is that playing music and playing clarinet is actually pretty simple. It's a lot of things that you have to do all at once, which makes it a little bit complicated. But when you break it down, all of those things that you're doing are pretty simple. You're just blowing into the instrument, you're forming your embouchure a certain way, you're touching your tongue to the reed. And I think it's just sort of my personality that I really like to get down to the core of things and boil complicated problems down into their most simple and, and easiest way to solve them. And that's sort of my approach with all of my quick start clarinet content is to give people another perspective or another way of looking at things that'll just make things easier. It's also a resource that I kind of wish that I had growing up. I did take some lessons in high school, um, but it wasn't until really I got into college that I started to feel really confident about playing and actually getting the sound that I want when I want, for the most part. Sometimes it's still even a struggle today, and that's why we all still have to practice, right? But Quick Start Clarinet is, in the basic way, it's 
videos that I release every week to my YouTube channel. I also do a live weekly warm up every Monday at 1230 Mountain Time, where I go over a warm up exercise, sort of dig into what you should be getting out of it and how to actually do it. And then I also have some paid products, my favorite of which is the Next Generation Clarinet Method, which is sort of a method book, sort of an online course that I created that really goes through sort of step by step what I think is important to understand about playing the clarinet and how to really get the fundamentals you need to make playing easy and enjoyable. I love that. And so do you find that uh, during this whole situation, the listenership or what would you call it, the uh, enrollment has gone up considerably. I mean, we've suddenly reached a point where, you know, you mentioned the need to create this as being kind of a personal goal. And that's why I created the podcast too. And I've been told that the best business decisions come out of kind of that need for a product, right? Recognizing that need that the keenest people can see that and do something with it. Right. But more people have needed that sort of, uh, lessons that happened virtually over the course of this, this whole situation. So have, has listenership gone up or people have kind of come crowding in for something like this or have they, what have they done? Yeah, definitely. It's hard to say if it's solely because of that or because I've also been trying to do a lot more promotional and just growing and and hitting that stage where I'm starting to get momentum. But certainly since around August or September of this year, which I think was also back to school time, played a role in it as well. But definitely the, the YouTube channel has been really taking off lately, which I'm really excited about. It's like they say, I don't remember who said this, but uh, the more I work, the luckier I get, <laughs> you know, so yeah, that's a great quote. I like that. Yeah, I don't remember where that came from, but uh, it's totally true, you know, and I think that now that, you know, there's been the time for many people to invest in content creation. I've seen dozens of new YouTube channels pop up, not just in the clarinet world, but uh, and I mean, there's even been some new clarinet podcasts I've seen coming out. There's this new content everywhere. And I think that there's a lot of people who are are looking online. So, so can you walk me through one of these courses then? You've got uh, a five must-know clarinet tips to start with. What does that kind of go over and what can people hope to gain from it? Yeah, so that's actually a new completely free training that I've put together. And what that is, is sort of big five categories of things that I really want my students to get out of my lessons. And that's sort of, again, what I was talking about with my boiling things down to really fundamental things. So the five things are rhythm. Rhythm's the number one most important thing to any piece of music. It's really black and white if you're right or wrong. uh, And if you're wrong, then it's a completely different piece. Um, The second thing is fundamentals. I'm a huge fundamentals person. That's why I do a weekly warm up where every single week I'm talking about warm up exercises because I think if you can get the clarinet to do what you want, then it opens up so many possibilities for your musicianship. And that's the third point is musicianship. That's something that I actually feel like I didn't really grasp until my master's degree, actually, really how to analyze music and find sort of the secret nuggets within the music to make a really interesting performance. The fourth one is to just slow down. All of my students play things too fast. Um, If you're not able to do it totally comfortable and consistently, then I think you should just go slower and make it easier for yourself. And then the fifth tip is planning practicing. I have an ultimate practice guide that I also did a YouTube video about, but I just like to keep everything about the practicing organized and make it so you get in and do your work for the day 
and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. I'm a big fan of having many goals and, and getting the work in and the little things that you do today will really add up in the long run. Totally. You know, that rhythm comment that you made about the, the piece being different if the rhythm is wrong. So many people don't realize that. And I've often proved that to students at clinics and workshops. Um, what I do is I show them a demonstration. I say, because they ask about this, they're like, oh, I don't believe that or whatever. And I'm like, look at this. So I'll play a melody like happy birthday. Right. I won't give it away yet. I'll play it with a totally different rhythm using the same notes. I'll say, what what piece was that? What song was that? And oh, I don't know. You know, and uh, then I'll play it again, but I'll play it with one wrong note. So I'll play the correct rhythm, mostly correct notes, one wrong note. And I'll say, oh, what is it now? Happy birthday. And that proves it. Like everyone recognizes happy birthday with one wrong note, but no one recognizes it or very few people with the wrong rhythm. Exactly. If you play the wrong rhythm, it doesn't matter if it was the right note or how beautiful your tone was. It's, it's just blatantly objectively wrong. Whereas if you play a wrong note, then maybe you're just adding some color to the harmony or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and like, it's true that and people always say, oh, well, aren't wrong notes wrong, too? And it's like, well, yes, they are, but they don't completely disorient the piece, you know, or completely change the style. One wrong note is a flub is, is just that. But like, if you were watching even like a rock band concert, and the drummer got off by a beat, the concert's over, the band has to stop, <laughs> you know, whereas if he hits the hi hat instead of the ride cymbal for one note, nobody's gonna care, right? So what you said earlier about the students too absorbing kind of the musical elements of the piece. Um, can you go into that a little bit more? Like, I mean, one thing I've done in the past is explain to someone like, look, there's 50 notes on this page, but there's only really four chords going on. If you can look at it that way, you're going to have a heck of a lot easier time learning it, playing it, memorizing it, thinking about it, interpreting it, everything. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very similar. Um, I took Shankarian analysis when I was in my undergrad and there's all kinds of issues with Schenker and all the, that debate. But I do think Schenkerian analysis is really interesting and effective way to, again, like I like to do, boil the piece down into something more basic and easy to follow. So exactly like you said, looking at the four chords of a piece, looking for different patterns. I love looking at musical groupings using the sort of um, Marcel Tabito grouping and, and momentum and, and leading things to the next beat. A fantastic book is uh, David McGill's Sound in Motion. I think everybody should read that if you want to have a really eye-opening way of approaching music. But one of my favorite things to do with students that doesn't require all of that in-depth musical analysis is just to ask the question, what's an interesting detail that you like in this piece? For me, actually growing up, I was always really praised for really going for the dynamics because most middle schoolers play kind of the right notes and rhythms, but very few of them look down at the bottom of the page and get the dynamics. And that was something I was good at and my teacher would always praise me for. So that's something sometimes I maybe do too much of, but something like that, if you can find a detail in the piece, maybe a subito piano, a ritardando that you really like, an octave leap or some interval in the piece that you really like. And you get to be sort of the storyteller who knows that that interesting and exciting moment is going to happen in the piece. And if you can shape the music and tell the story of a music in such a way that the audience can come away thinking, oh, I loved that octave slur or something like that, then I think that's really successful. That's sort of you interpreting the music, coming up with what it means to you, and then conveying that effectively to the audience. And I think that's what we want to do in music, right? 
Real quick before we move on, I know a couple people are probably, including myself, are scratching their heads about those two methods you talked about. So there was one, the Shinkirian analysis, the other one, the Tabito, I think. I've heard about both, but I've never really dove into them. Would you just kind of, in a nutshell, tell me about those? Yeah, so Shinkarian analysis is a approach to music theory for analyzing tonal music. And basically, Schenker's idea was you could take any piece, even like the whole Wagner ring cycle, and reduce it down to this very distant background of the piece, which usually was the harmony going one, five, one, and the melody going five, four, three, two, one. And it's gets really complicated, but you can take all of the notes and say, well, this note's an appoggiatura, this note's a passing tone, and you basically sort of erase all of the embellishments that the composer has put in until you get to that background core meaning of the piece. The uh, tabito sort of grouping of notes kind of goes along the same lines where you're grouping in such a way that you're bringing out that more background kind of structure to the piece. So instead of playing a scale, just da, 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 you can think of it as I'm starting on five, and then I do a passing tone through four, getting to three, and then two is a tension point, a pagiatura, resolving to one kind of thing. The, my favorite way to implement the, the tabito groupings is in long runs of 16th notes, where it's so easy to have what I call fast note freakout, where you're more or less getting the downbeats, you're, you're lining up with the metronome on the click, but you get sort of mush in between, da, 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 where it's just very unclear. But instead, if you really spell out those in-between notes and practice starting on the second note of the 16th note, so instead of one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, where it's all slurred and, and yucky sounding, you go two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, then you can get a really clear one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, and actually have it sound nice and clear and clean. Yeah, I love that. And you know, that's one of my favorite things to do in lessons too, is like you got this crazy run or something like, just play the two notes that you think are most important. And let's say it's like a C that runs up through a scale to the C two octaves later, you'll realize it's like usually that main note leading towards that top one and everything in between needs to happen. But you don't need to draw emphasis to those notes, which so many people um, in an instance like that, like they're going to just really loudly and crazily play through this run, not realizing it's kind of like an embellishment leading toward what's supposed to be heard at the end of it. <laughs> you know, that's really smart. And anyone interested in those? Yeah, check it out. It, which is the one that numbers stuff? Is that some other system? Have you heard about this? Yeah, that's another thing that Tabito would do. I think you're talking about the phrasing stuff where you'd say like, oh, this note's a one and then this note's a four. And that was something that he would do for dynamics and phrasing. Definitely, if you're interested in this, I think my favorite resource about it is David McGill's Sound in Motion book. There's a few other teachers who have written about it and there's there's lots of study of this, but I think the Sound in Motion is my favorite one, at least. It's one of those books that many podcast uh, guests have mentioned that I haven't read yet, so one day I will read it. But uh, I did watch a presentation about that numbering system once, and quite honestly, I felt that it complicated things beyond a musical realm. I don't know, it just seemed a little too mathematical for me to be thinking about while I'm playing, but maybe from an analytical perspective, it works really well. I'm not sure. I've never really dove into it. That's an interesting point, actually, because in Sound in Motion, he talks about 
how Tabito would teach this to his students, but it is truly just an academic thing. It's something that you eventually just do intuitively, but if you sort of need help starting to get into it, then it's a good way to to start thinking about that. But yeah, I think most musicians do it more intuitively. Well, I think there's different schools of people and different ways of people thinking, which is fair. You know, I mean, I was going to ask you too, are you the kind of person who writes all over your scores or are you the kind of person who prefers to kind of leave it more blank? <laughs> yeah, I definitely am more of a blank person. I am of the school of thought that if there's too much going on there, then it just makes it stressful and hectic and you're not actually paying attention to it. I think it's good to think about all of those details and, and have a really clear plan for what you want to do. But I think at the end of the day, you have to know your plan well enough that you can do it without all the markings. And even if you write all in all the markings, you're probably not watching that in performance. You're just doing it because you planned on doing that. Yeah, I've met three kinds of people, I think. Some who don't mark up the score very much, maybe just the minimal stuff, fingerings here and there and the odd extra dynamic and whatever. And then one type of person who completely just covers the page in notes. And I once had someone tell me in a masterclass or something that, you know, if your page doesn't look like this, then you don't really know the piece. And I thought that was at the time, even I thought that was such a ridiculous way of looking at it, because how am I supposed to read the piece if all that crap is on there, <laughs> you know, for lack of a better word. But then there's a third type of person who I know of someone who does this, actually, he actually either photocopies the piece or buys two scores, one to write in, one to perform from and or study and uh, or keep as a reference or whatever. And uh, I thought that was the maybe the best way, because while you are learning, if you need to highlight a passage to work on or circle something or whatever, you can you can do that. But then when you're ready to have absorbed all that, you don't need to look at it on the paper anymore. You can perform the piece with all that in your musical head, but without the distraction on the page. So I thought that was kind of a cool way to do it. And I now keep a couple of photocopies of, you know, past performances or whatever inside of the, the, the cover of my pieces when I do that. Yeah, I like that. My favorite version, which I unfortunately don't do as much as I wish I did, is just doing it from memory, because then you don't have to worry about how much you've written on there. It's just all in your head. So what have you got coming for Quick Start Clarinet? What's next? Right now, I'm really trying to just get the word out about it to as many people as I can. I'm right now really happy with my main product, which is the Next Generation Clarinet Method. It's a method book first and foremost, but it also comes with timelines to sort of guide you through it. My goal was to have this online program that is almost as good as taking private lessons or having a private teacher. Of course, you don't get that feedback. You have to be your own teacher in terms of deciding if you're doing things the way that you want or not. But I think it has everything laid out that you need to do to be really successful. So that's what I'm the most excited about right now. I just recently did a version two of that, and I already have plans for a version three that's going to add some more music, um, add some more playing examples to help sort of guide in the right direction. So the other thing is the five must-know clarinet tips free training that we just talked about. It's over an hour long. It's all of my wisdom that I hope all of my students gain, and I think it's really valuable. And in that training, actually, there's also some information about the next generation clarinet method as well. I love it. Do you have any advice for clarinetists who might uh, be interested in being a little entrepreneurial themselves, or is it something you think only certain people are kind of attracted to and can put in the effort? I'm thinking of myself even. I at first thought that it's something maybe everybody could do, but 
having done it now for five years and seeing the work that goes into it and the sacrifice and it's, uh, I'm not sure it is for everyone, but I'd be interested in your take on it. I absolutely think everybody should try it, but I agree that it is really challenging and it can be really frustrating. Even for me right now, I'm still in pretty early stages. My YouTube channel is at 800 subscribers right now. I'm certainly nowhere close to making a even regular income from Quick Start Clarinet right now. And I've been going at it for about three years now. So it takes time to build things up and get things going. And I think it's a fantastic idea if you're interested in doing anything like this at all. If you have any inkling in the back of your mind of, oh man, this would be really awesome if this resource existed. I think nowadays it's easier than ever to do it. So if you're interested in it, go for it, try it, but know that it takes even more dedication and perseverance than you're told that it does. Because everybody says that owning your own business and doing those things is really difficult, but it, it really is more difficult than you can imagine. But for me personally, I love making my YouTube videos. It makes my day when somebody comments on YouTube or sends me an email saying like, hey, this was really helpful. Like that's what I'm here to do. And, and it really is fulfilling to me. So if I could give one piece of advice for anybody who's interested in this, besides just do it and try it, my other piece of advice would be to find your why and find a reason for yourself that is really compelling and something really powerful that will motivate you to every single day do something that grows it and, and makes it a better thing. Just like playing the clarinet and practicing, you have to practice every day to get better. So find a good reason to motivate yourself, something that's really inspirational to you to do that. And for me, my why is helping people and giving the people the resources that I wish I had when I was first learning. Well, first of all, pause this uh, video or podcast or wherever you're listening right now and go and subscribe to him on YouTube. We've got to get those numbers up because uh, and, you know, all clarinet players right now should be subscribing to each other on YouTube because I don't know if you know this, but you need to reach a thousand subscribers before you can become monetized now, which will help with, you know, content generation, of course, but also 4000 watch hours. So even clarinet, you might be surprised, but I have almost 4000 subscribers or sorry, 2500, I think almost 3000. But somehow I'm still not at the watch hours because I don't. I think many people listen to the podcast on YouTube. <laughs> so it's one of those weird things, right? But uh, yeah, we need to all support ourselves in the industry and try and sort of bring up everybody. Uh, what do they say? A rising tide brings up all ships or whatever. I'm sure I said that kind of wrong, but I just about said sinks all ships, but that's not right. <laughs> I guess if they're anchored to the, the bottom of the sea, maybe. But uh, anyway, but yeah, we should all be supporting ourselves. So go subscribe to him on YouTube. And uh, also, I'm sure many people are listening out there and thought that, you know, you're saying some pretty interesting stuff and they want to check out more with your programs. Where can they head to check you out online and uh, outside of YouTube? Yeah, so the YouTube channel is Quick Start Clarinet. The free training, go to quickstartclarinet.com slash training to get the five must-know clarinet tips that I'm really excited about. You can go to quickstartclarinet.com. That sort of has everything that I'm doing. And if you're interested specifically in the next generation clarinet method, go to quickstartclarinet.com slash nextgenbook, all one word. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on today. Was there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, thanks so much for having me. This was a really great conversation and I'm really, really excited that we got to do it and be here. When I first 
listen to the Clarinet podcast. The very first episode I listened to back at the beginning of 2018, I think, was with Martin Frost, who is one of my absolute favorite clarinet idols. And being on a podcast that he was on is so exciting. And just seeing how much the Clarinet podcast has grown in the past couple of years is, is really cool. And I'm glad that I was get, able to be here. And it was great to have this conversation with you. If you're listening to the show today on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube, I want to thank you so much for listening today. But now we're going to go into the lightning round, which is exclusive for the Patreon listeners. So thank you so much for joining us. And if you want some more of the Clarinet podcast, head to clarinet.com slash subscribe to get access for as little as $1 per month to extended ad-free content. Don't forget to head to quickstartclarinet.com to check out some of the amazing things Josh has been doing. So Josh, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a great time. Thank you for joining me today on the Clarinet Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your clarinet friends about it and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with me, have a listener question, guest suggestion, or any other feedback, you can contact me directly with the contact form on the website. And now you can leave me a voicemail message, which might even be heard on the show. I'd also like to thank our sponsors before we wrap up. And we have Legere Reads. And you know what? If you're someone out there who's struggling with the seasons right now with your reads, you know, as the weather's changing, uh, sometimes your reads will start changing too. This is the perfect time to try Legere Reads. And uh, as I was saying a while ago on Instagram, I'd actually suggest making sure to try several different strengths and several different even uh, of the same strength just to have in your case. And I know it can seem like a bit of an upfront investment, but if you switch kind of cold turkey to synthetic reads, I think the switch is a lot easier. And there still are days when you're going to want a slightly softer or slightly harder read. And this can help you make that transition and also have the most kind of playing comfort all the time. So you can check out Legere Reads at your local music store or at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E.com. You can also save 10% on your next accessory purchase from Bakun Musical Services. And yes, this actually does include Legere Reads. They've been stocking them on the website now, so you can check that out. And it's also good to know that the Vocalese Mouthpiece series from Bakun was actually designed to work not only with synthetic reeds, but also with cane. So no matter your preference, you'll be able to find a mouthpiece that will work really well for your setup, and they're affordably priced. Uh, the Vocalese Mouthpiece is now available for both the B-flat and bass clarinet in several different models, depending on your preference. So you can try that out and get 10% off with code Clarinet at bakunmusical.com. Again, that's code Clarinet at bakunmusical.com. Of course, I'd also like to thank our gold level Patreon backers. These are supporters of the show who sponsor at $10 a month or more. We have Andrew M, April J, David S, Debbie A, Glenn K, Jason S, Josh N, Karen K, Miguel D, Todd M and William L. Thank you so much for making the show possible. I'm your host, Sean Perrin, signing off from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I look forward to seeing you next time on the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists.